right, so a few weeks ago, uh, Larry and I had to take our middle daughter who's going off to college to her freshman orientation. And um, she's going to school in Philadelphia, and it started at 8 o'clock in the morning. And so we thought we didn't want to get up that early. And so we got a hotel the night before, 7.30 in the morning. We're downstairs ready to get our coffee. And I noticed this uh, young family in the uh, breakfast buffet area. And so um, the kids are in their adorable pajamas. And the mom, it's early, but the mom seems like it's been a rough morning. I mean, I, you know, kids in hotel rooms, they might not have slept, but she was frazzled. And she was looking around trying to figure out what she was going to feed her kids. And uh, so she's making a plate for what looks like maybe a five-year-old, her little son, and she hands the plate to him. And he says very loudly so everybody can hear. He looks at his plate and he says, do you even know me? <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Um, and she didn't, which I get. Uh, but really, that is the challenge of parenting. So much of it is these kids come to us and they aren't, you know, we can't order what we want. They come as they are with different personalities, different preferences, dislikes struggles and gifts and they aren't these cookie cutter images of like what we wanted them to be and it isn't about trying to make them more like one another make them more like you uh, make them more like what you dreamed your child would be the idea is to see who they are and help them become the best version of that and so years ago when um, my girls were still pretty young uh, there's a young woman she was uh, probably in the you know, young 20s, she said to me that she loved how we had let our three daughters be very different. And I, I know she meant it as a compliment, but at the time, and I'm still a little bit this way, I was kind of like, that wasn't intentional. Like, I have no idea how to try to make these three girls be more alike. They're, they're different, and you know them. They, are, they still are very different. And yet we are all kind of raised with these expectations, right? Expectations from our families, um, our culture, our society, even the churches we're raised in oftentimes that kind of make us conform, conform to certain behaviors and decisions in our lives. So this week I just finished reading Michelle Obama's um, book, Becoming, and it's interesting. She wrote about how um, a few years into her career as a lawyer, she has this great job, and Chicago is like the dream, right? And she worked, um, she went to Harvard Law, she has, you know, the loans to prove it, she's gotten her bar, and passed the bar, and um, she gets in there and she realizes she doesn't like being a lawyer. She realized what she liked was proving people wrong. Proving that um, people's expectations that she could kind of, what they thought she could be more than that because she was black, because she was on the south side of Chicago, because she was a woman. And so that is what felt good for her. And then she got into the job and realized, I don't like this, right? And so, you know, she made a change, and she's doing okay for herself these days. But um, during this teaching series, we have been using, um, called Quitters, we've been using Jerry Scazzaro's book, I Quit, to look at the often unconscious decisions and habits that we make that we really need to quit in order to live in the freedom that we have in Christ. And so we've looked at things like quit caring what other people think. Quit lying to ourselves and others about how we really feel. Uh, 
quit over-functioning for others, which means quit doing for others what they can and should be doing for themselves. The book also talks about quit blaming other people, quit denying your emotions of sadness, anger, and fear. And this morning we're going to talk about the last two that I think really go together. Um, They are quit dying to the wrong things and quit living someone else's life. I think all of these things that we need to quit, it it isn't like a checklist that we can just buzz through, right? They all kind of go with one another. And so we have to work on them holistically together. But the idea of dying to the wrong things is that when we choose to follow Jesus, there is this important act of burying our old life and living a new life for Jesus. So Paul, who um, began Many churches, um, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he went back to heaven, uh, we see that Paul goes around, and he starts all these churches, and he sends these letters telling them how they are supposed to live this new life, right? Bury the old life, live a new life. And so he writes to the church in Corinth in the second um, letter in chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And that's where we get that uh, phrase that you hear Americans say, born-again Christian. That idea that, you know, it's a new life, a new life in Christ. And so we have to put things to death. But oftentimes, when we are new believers, we look around and we look at people who we admire And we try to emulate their life and be exactly maybe a Christian like they do it, right? And there's a piece to that. And then sometimes um, there will be people who will be clear on their expectations, what that means for you. If you're a Christian, you need to do this. Maybe it was your parents, maybe a a church leader. And so um, there's this dilemma of you're trying to be somebody else and yet be yourself. And we see Paul um, trying to explain that struggle also in in 1 Corinthians. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then later in that letter, he still says, when people say, should I eat uh, food that was sacrificed to idols? He said, well, that's kind of a gray area. There's some freedom. You have to think about things. Is that really what is good for you? Is it good for other people around you? And so we see this dilemma of trying to imitate others, and yet figuring it out for ourselves, what's right for us. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, God certainly calls us to die to certain sinful parts of ourselves. I don't want anybody to go home and not hear that part, right? We need to get rid of defensiveness, arrogance, hypocrisy, our judgmental spirit. We really need to do the hard work of looking at ourselves and our, our behavior And try to put to death, continually work to put to death those things that cause harm to ourselves and to others. Uh, Paul says to the Ephesians, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So that's a list there. Those are the things you need to get rid of, you know. There's no um, grace there where you're like, you know what, God just made me to be a little judgmental. So it's, it's cool. Right? Um, I don't want you to say, you know, I just say it how it is. So it's okay that I'm a jerk sometimes and hurt people, right? I hear people saying that, and that's not what I'm saying here. There's a big difference between our sinful behaviors 
and our God-given uniqueness and gifts. And so that, that's why it's really important we're careful that we don't die to the wrong things in our lives. And so Jerry Scazzaro, when she's telling her own story, she's realized that after following Jesus for several years, she was really living by these unwritten expectations that others had of her. So expectations that if she was really a loving Christian, then she couldn't say no to people if they asked for help. The expectation that she would always be busy and that she would always spend time with other people socially, um, that she would be productive, right? All of her time, she'd be a very productive Christian, that she was always available for others. And she realized, she wore herself out, and she realized she was completely living by what she believed other people's expectations were of her. And in order to do that, she lost some parts of herself. She didn't have time for her parents and her siblings. It meant she ignored her love of learning and reading in silence, her love of nature. And what she believed was the opposite of being selfish is being selfless. But that is not true. God asks us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in that, there is this expectation that we love others and we love ourselves, that they are actually not mutually exclusive. And Jesus understood this tension, this tension between everybody having expectations of him and his awareness of his unique calling, of what he was meant to do. And he would not allow his behavior and decisions to be dictated by others. We see this at just at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1. Um, in verse 32, it says, That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many from various diseases. Verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So he's healing all these people that are coming to him. Crowds are coming to him, probably up late at night. He gets up early, and he goes doesn't tell anybody, doesn't leave a note, he just goes, right? And verse 36, it says, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus replied, Let's, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so that's what we see him do. He goes and travels throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues. But they're confused. Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Everyone needs you. Everybody wants you. There's a crowd. You have to do it, right? And even though there's this pressure, Jesus knew what he needed to do. And he wouldn't let it be uh, mandated by the crowds that came. He, he decided, I need to move on, right? I have work to do in other places. And we see him do this over and over again throughout his ministry, Again, in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it says, After the people saw the signs that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, who has come into the world. But it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He knew that their expectations was that a Messiah would be this political king. And they were going to make him do it by force. But Jesus wouldn't let them. He knew what he was meant to do. And their expectations didn't matter. 
In the end, he disappointed people over and over again. He disappointed his family to the point where his mom and his siblings said, maybe you have lost your mind. He disappointed his closest friends who didn't think he was um, doing the right thing if he really wanted to make himself known. He disappointed religious leaders who expected him to hang out with the right people, but he hung out with people who were unclean, who were of the wrong race, who were sinners and criminals. He just didn't let people's expectations of him dictate how he lived his life. So this week, I, I just kept thinking of a close friend of mine when I was um, preparing for this message and this idea of letting the wrong things die in your life and living somebody else's life. And this friend of mine came, um, I was thinking about him because we went to college together, both to um, become pastors, and I knew that somewhere in to his career, he had gotten to the point where he was leading a pretty large church, um, growing church in, in California at a, a pretty young age, um, in his uh, early 30s, and he uh, left it all and went back to school to study art. And I, I knew we were friends at the time, but I didn't really talk to him what was going on um, to kind of motivate him. Uh, so I called him and just talked to him about that time in his life. And he talked about um, growing up as a teenager, he really saw himself as an artist. He was great at it. Um, people saw him as an artist as well, and he intended to pursue that. He even got a, a scholarship um, to study art, but the summer between, uh, between high school and college, he started to party a lot, making some mistakes, and really knew that he needed to make a change. He'd grown up in the church, and many people had told him, you know what? you would make a great pastor. And so he thought about those expectations that people had of him, and he's like, I need to make a big change in my life, so why don't I try to be a pastor? That'll change my life. And so he got to Bible college and um, started getting these opportunities to lead in churches right away. He was good at it, to the point where, um, you know, 10 years later, he's leading this large church. But he said, he just was so unhappy. He um, was struggling with depression and anger. And I just want to give you some of the words that I, I heard as he was talking about that time in his life. Um, they're important. He said, I felt like I lost something essential to me. I lost something essential to me. He said, my job just didn't fit my wiring. The tasks of the job weren't great for my temperament. And then he said, I felt like I had become good at being inauthentic. When you live someone else's life, you got to be good at being inauthentic. He had died to the wrong things. And so his doctor suggested that maybe his struggle with depression wasn't actually about a chemical imbalance, but maybe about some life situation. And so around that time, he found himself wandering into an art gallery. And he said just being around the art, he hadn't done it for years, and just being around the art just kind of awakened him. And so he decided he was just going to play around with art on his own. And he said he started to come alive. And he realized that um, he could no longer kind of not be himself. And so he talked to his wife. They had just had their third kid. He said like two days after um, their third child was born, he said to his wife, um, I've been looking at some art schools. And so they made a big change, which I, w I will admit, 
he, he was privileged to have the opportunity to do that. Not everybody is in that situation. He was privileged to have um, parents that said, come and live with your three children in our home um, and be able to pursue something that he, he dreamed of. But now he is an art professor at a liberal arts college. Um, talking to him was just wonderful because he's just, he's just in a different place and so um, fulfilled and just in the right spot. When you talk to people sometimes and they're just like, this is the right spot for me. His home is filled with art. Every um, summer he works with youth to do murals throughout um, different cities. He's even come here and we did some in the very beginning of our church. We did some murals um, led by Tim. And he talked about how his life now is that he has this opportunity to kind of walk alongside people who he would never would have had access to. People who don't feel uh, invited and safe and welcomed, say art community largely, um, into a church that he would have been leading. And now he just kind of walks alongside of them and they, they talk about big things, big questions in life. And they're open to him kind of sharing his faith a bit with them. And he just uh, kind of marveled at how God did that, how he put him in a place where he could use him um, with the gifts that he had given him. God calls us to love God and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And when we love others, this is important, we love them as unique individuals that are made in God's image. We love them by recognizing their dignity given by God, along with their own agency and their freedom. That's a gift that God gives us. It's the type of love that God gives us and that we should give to others and ourselves. We need to recognize our uniqueness and value it as a precious gift. And that means that we need to know ourselves. We need to do some hard work to really know ourselves, understand our own history, our story, understand how our family of origin has affected us, and make sure that we're making decisions not just out of our family's expectations for us, but out of God's and how he created us. If we love ourselves well, then we value the uniqueness, and we need to understand how we work, how we're made. Are we introverted or extroverted? There's so many helpful personality test assessments that you can have um, that are very helpful for you that kind of focus on different things. Uh, but there are two really important questions that I think personality tests um, help us answer. And we need to work to answer these questions. So we have some sheets that uh, Lily's going to pass out for us. They, uh, they are in Spanish on one side, English on the other. So these are important questions that uh, Jerry Scazzaro included in her book. And uh, these are questions that we, we need to return to over and over again. Like today, you might just start this. But really, these are questions that you need to return to, especially when you're in a spot where you're making a big decision in your life. Um, these are kind of the important questions to look at. The first question is, what do you rely on to secure your own significance and value? What do you rely on to secure your own significance and value? So an easy way to think about that is, I know that I'm enough if. I know that I'm enough if everybody's happy. 
I know that I'm enough if I'm making good money. I know that I'm enough if I'm getting straight A's. I know, you know, there, there are different motivations for all of us. Um, we know that we are supposed to um, get our identity and our worth from God. But all of us replace that worth with other things. And it's important for us to identify that. So think about that for a moment. I know that I'm enough if. How would you answer that for yourself? I hope that you will continue to ask yourself that question. Do some digging, some praying with God about that. The next question is, what core fears motivate your behaviors? What are the fears that you make decisions out of? Your core fear, being alone, being loved or not being loved, your core fear of not having enough, running out of money, not being important, not seen as and seen and respected. What is what are the fears that motivate your behaviors? I hope you'll take these sheets um, back with you and, and really spend some time praying and reflecting on those questions. Um, this is just part of our journey. Getting to know ourselves and our uniqueness, it's a journey. It takes time and it takes work. It takes work on our part, but it really is important work. If we really want to live the life that God has given us, unique to each one of us, now, there are two important practices that Jerry mentions in her book that have really helped her answer the question, who am I? Who am I? Do I know me? And those two practices that she mentioned are um, two things that I've also been working on myself and have really um, been helpful for me. Uh, the first is the Enneagram, which is uh, a personality test. There's, th there's nine different um, types of personality. 
But really, I think what uh, sets it apart a little bit is um, its focus of identifying the temptation that is unique to that personality type that kind of informs your decisions and behaviors, oftentimes that we're unaware of. And so uh, the point is to really um, figure out, identify that particular temptation and just to really work at becoming aware of it in your life, how it works. And there's a lot we could say about the Enneagram. Um, John led, uh, John Wang is kind of our, our expert here. We're very um, lucky that we have him. He's worked really hard to learn about the Enneagram. And um, he led a workshop about a year ago, and many of us went through that. It kind of, I know, has kind of filtered into many conversations, and uh, a lot of you are getting started on that work. If that's something that you're interested in, talk to uh, John or me or Larry, and we can get you started on uh, some resources to help kind of start in that work and uh, let you know that he's going to do another workshop uh, in September we're talking about that's kind of going to go to the next level a little bit. Um, once you've identified your type, it kind of help us grow in that a little bit. Um, the next practice that uh, Jerry Scavera talked about is the practice of the prayer called the Daily Examine. And this is a prayer that was created a long time ago by St. Ignatius of Loyola, um, Ignatian spirituality, still practice it. Many people practice it today. And it is a prayerful reflection at the end of the day, asking a few questions um, to consider prayerfully, like, when did I feel the most alive today? Or when did I feel the most tension today? And when this prayer is done regularly and reflectively, it really helps to listen to and understand how we're uniquely made and make decisions out of what we hear from God in prayer. Because God has given us these unique personalities, um, he also gives us freedom to choose what it looks like for our uniqueness to follow Jesus, to love God and to love our neighbor. And the truth is that it isn't going to look the same for each of us. Larry mentioned last week that um, oftentimes when we pick these teaching series, it gets into our business a bit. And, um, and I would say especially for the speakers, um, and that's been true for me. I, this one has been a hard one. Um, I know that I need to quit some things. And so for me personally, what I've been trying to do is really practice um, faithfully the examine. And so I looked on uh, the Internet for a helpful guide, um, and I found uh, one. I think it's called God in All Things, and it has lots of different um, medita reflection meditations um, and I found one that I think is going to be very helpful for us to kind of close the series today. And that is a meditation on Psalm 139. And so what I would like us to do is just to try to center ourselves for a moment, take a deep breath, and open yourself up to quieting your mind and listening to the Spirit's voice, its gentle whisper. We're going to reflect on the way God intimately knows you and intimately created you. Psalm 139 is on your sheet. It begins, Lord, you have examined me, and you know me. You know everything I do. From far away, you understand all my thoughts. You see me, whether I'm working or resting, and you know all my actions. Even before I speak, you already know what I will say.
reflect on how does God know you? When you look into your heart and into your actions and into the words you speak to others, what does God see when he sees you? Not to what, do, what you see or what others see. What does God see when he looks at you? You are all around me on every side. You protect me with your power. Your knowledge of me is too deep. It is beyond my understanding. God's gaze upon us is constant. And his gaze is not one of judgment, but of love. How, consider how God protects you with his watch, with, with his constant gauge, gaze. Where can I go to escape from you? Where could I get away from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I lay down in the world of the dead, you would be there. If I flew away beyond the east or lived in the farthest place in the west, you would be there to lead me. You would be there to help me. I could ask the darkness to hide me or the light around me to turn into night, but even darkness is not dark for you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to you. God is in all things, in all places. Consider how often you try to escape God's presence. How often does fear or shame cause you to avoid being transparent with God? Ask yourself, can you be yourself before God. You created every part of me. You put me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because you are to be feared. All you do is strange and wonderful, and I know it with all my heart. When my bones were being formed, carefully put together in my mother's womb, and when I was growing there in secret, you knew that I was there. You saw me before I was born. The days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them ever began. You, each of you, have been intimately created by God. You are unique and God knows you more intimately than you can ever imagine. All your interests and your passions and your personality are what make you you. Can you sit for a moment in wonder and awe at this? Can you praise God for the wondrous human being that you are?
Oh God, how difficult I find your thoughts. How many of them there are. If I counted them, they would be more than the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. God is so far beyond our comprehension. And yet through this world, we get to know God through our experiences and our friendship and prayer and scripture. We come to know God more and more personally, just as he intimately knows us. He is never absent from us. Consider the times you struggle with faith and ask God for the grace to know his intimate presence. going to close in prayer, prayer based on this psalm. Dear God, intimate creator and friend, long ago you breathed life into me. You blessed me with DNA and fingerprints, family and personality, interests and personal freedom, and I am filled with wonder and awe. Your spirit calls me to be the one you intimately created, the one uniquely blessed, the one true self that I am. And I cannot escape this call. I cannot escape you. Your gaze is ever loving, ever yearning, and it is upon me. Be close. See me. Form me. And help me to love the me you intimately created. Amen.